0: Proudly student and listener-supported community radio. CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city.
1: The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Well, we're back on the Radical Reverend show, and we're always delighted to be here at CIUT 89.5 FM, the last real indie station left in the GTHA. And of course, we have an election coming up in Ontario, so we're going to be focusing on that in the next few weeks, no doubt. And today to help me do that, I'm really thrilled to have Mike Schreiner on the show. Uh, Second half, Nikki Ashton federally, but uh, here we are with Mike wearing a green tie And if you don't know, you should know that he is the leader of the Ontario Green Party here and also the MPP for Guelph, Ontario. Now, Mike, you have been in politics for a long time before you got elected. So just, you know, bring our listeners up to date. What did it feel like on the night of the election when you got elected finally?
2: Well, Sherry, first of all, it's a pleasure to be on and always enjoy our conversations uh, on air and off air. And, uh, you know, it was it was one of those moments where after years of hard work, it was kind of like, oh, it finally paid off and just feeling excited and honored. And just, you know, how much I deeply appreciate uh, people in Guelph having confidence in me, trusting me with their vote, uh, trusting me to be uh, their voice in the legislature. Uh, But I'll have to say it was a bit of a bittersweet night as well, because with the Ford government getting a majority and, and, and I knew that, um, you know, as premier Doug Ford was not going to be a friend of the environment. So I remember I was trying to write my remarks because I knew it would be a historic night and there would be a lot of cameras on me. And I wanted to make sure I, I delivered a message that night, um, to the premier elect. And, and I, and I did, and I said, you know what, if, if you're going to roll back climate action in this province, you're going to have the fiercest critic in the legislature in Mike Schreiner, and I'm going to fight back you know, any and every way I can uh, to you know, prevent you from doing that. And, you know, um, I, I I don't think I was wrong. <laughs> that would be a big part of uh, Doug Ford's agenda, unfortunately.
1: Speaking to Mike Schreiner here, leader of the Ontario Green Party and MPP for Guelph on the Radical Reverend Show, if you just tuned in. Uh, so a first timer there at Queen's Park, I mean, you have observed and you were in the stands mm-hmm. a lot because I remember even when I was there, uh, but now you're in one of those green leather seats. Uh, what is unexpected? What was expected? What were the surprises? Because there's so many newbies that have been there the, and this has been their first term for you. You know, what was the experience like?
2: Yeah, you know, the, not too many surprises in the public part of the job because I had, sort of seen that, witnessed that, tried to bully my way in a bit to be a part of that. I, I joke with security around here now that, you know, a lot of you used to chase me out of the building when I was trying to get my point across to journalists and things like that. Now I can just walk around the building wherever I want. So that that's a big shift. Uh, but I would say the, the sort of eye-opening thing for me was, you know, as, you know, being a caucus of one, I'm also the House leader, the critic for everything. And so, some of the just behind the scenes discussions around, you know, the proceedings of the house and how things are going to be organized and, and who has time and who doesn't. And I didn't realize how political even those conversations are, you know, I I know the policy conversations would be uh, highly political, but I didn't realize how political the procedural uh, conversations would be. And, you know, I've had to really fight at times for, um my voice to be heard but i feel like i've been very successful at that because the i'm the first person from a fourth party elected to the legislature since the mid 1940s and so the rules of the of the of the house really weren't written for an a fourth party to have a single member and so we've made some changes to those rules that have really enabled me to ask questions and participate in a more meaningful way than otherwise would have been the case but it was a lot of hard work to get there
1: yeah, and I'm sure you're punching above your weight as a, a solo practitioner in the place. i I remember when I was first elected, there was a caucus of ten, which is uh, and I had multiple critic portfolios. and I often describe that experience as as getting a doctorate and starting a small business all within three months. <laughs> <laughs> both of which i had done, but over years, you know, and you are for you know I mean, you're a small business owner too. You know what that's like and how much work goes into that. So uh, mm-hmm. so you're well equipped, but it is, it's is—it's a big hill to climb, uh, especially as one person representing everything. Um, but let's focus in on the environment because uh, that is what the Green Party is known for most and uh, should, should be what we're all most focused on. Uh, we're in a climate crisis in case you haven't heard or known. Doesn't often sound like that when you read mainstream media, but it's true. So climas, climate crisis given what's happened under the Ford government uh, and and what would be different and what should be different?
2: Yeah, Sherry, you know, I think the hardest part of this job, and just to be clear, I love this job and I, I just, I feel blessed every day that I'm able to have, a, have the voice that I have, uh, but we've seen essentially a systematic dismantling of environmental protections in Ontario from really day one of the Ford government. It started with dismantling all of the province's climate action plans, in particular, the cap and trade plan that put a price on pollution, the canceling of 750 renewable energy contracts, many of those with First Nations. So when you want to talk about truth and reconciliation and economic opportunities in Indigenous communities, you know, be reminded of, of, of that. Um, and then what has... So once he got rid of all the climate action plans... Then it's been a systematic dismantling of environmental protections in a way that will facilitate the big sprawl. And let's be really clear, this government is all about sprawl. So, you know, it was like removing conservation authorities' uh, ability to, you know, evidence-based decision-making to improve developments that would threaten our water, Uh, changing the environmental assessment process you know, violating the Environmental Bill of Rights, uh, you know, gutting the Endangered Species Act. I mean, the the misuse and abuse of ministerial zoning orders to overturn local and provincial planning laws. Um, And then now the um, just tripling down on highway 413 in the holland marsh highway or what some people call the bradford bypass uh, which is both are going to pave over parts of the Greenbelt, pave over farmland pave over wetlands my gosh we've already lost 75 percent of our wetlands in southern ontario those are the wetlands that protect us from flooding in a climate emergency those are the wetlands that filter our drinking water i mean i think of anything from COVID, we've learned how important um, self-sufficiency is and to pave over the farmland that feeds us. And all of it, all of it will supercharge climate pollution because the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions in Ontario is our transportation sector. And that is primarily driven by sprawl development. And that's what the Ford government's agenda is. And it's primarily going to benefit a handful of land speculators who also happen to be big donors to the conservative party. And they say it's in the name of affordable housing. It is not. <laughs> these aren't houses that people can afford. And, and even if they were, why are we forcing people to have to commute two hours just to find an affordable place to call home? Why don't we build livable, affordable, connected communities where people can live, work, play and shop locally? They can walk to work, bike to work, take electrified public transit to work rather than you know the, these you know, hours away from family and friends and community commuting. And so, so that's been hard. Uh, we've had some small victories, I would say, and those are people-powered victories. So, when Ford tried to open the Greenbelt open for development early in early in his um, term, you know, we pushed back and we had that schedule removed from Bill 66. And then more recently, during the pandemic, when they tried to issue a ministerial zoning order for an Amazon warehouse on the Duffins Creek wetlands, which is the last big remaining coastal wetlands along Lake Ontario and the GTA, you know people power change um, forced essentially Amazon said, hey, we don't need this headache and we prevented that from happening. but you know those small victories are are, are vitally important, uh, but they haven't they haven't reversed this destructive agenda. And then you know I read yesterday's um, uh, IPCC report. And it's just, you know, it's like, I don't know how many times they have to say now or never or code red, like we're in an emergency. And to think that on the very same day that the IPC said now or never on climate, the Ford government announces they're going to cut gasoline taxes and just make fossil fuels less expensive, like it just makes no sense. And so, you know, I'm just hoping that this upcoming provincial election, people will understand the urgency of addressing the climate and the housing affordability crisis and how the two of them are intimately linked to each other.
1: Uh, Speaking here to Mike Schreiner on the Radical Reverend Show uh, about his first four-year term, uh, both as MPP, um, of course, before that, he was leader of the Green Party and still is. uh, And we're talking environment, of course. It's it's number one priority, it seems to me, or should be for everyone. Gas tax. This is a clear bribe, an election bribe, I've called it, um, that's not even going to last that long. But it's kind of pocketbook popular. I mean, we know that in Ontario, because we haven't invested in our transit systems the way we should, because we don't have alternatives for many, many people. Um, I'm sure you hear this in Guelph, but certainly you hear it in the north, where very few alternatives exist other than the car, sometimes even other than the plane. Um, so, so how do you speak to those folk and how do you say, you know, you know, <laughs> but, um, here's what we should do. What do you say? Well,
2: first of all, I like to say to people that, um, I want to be honest with you. I don't want to tell you what you want to hear. I want to have an honest conversation with you. When it comes to making life more affordable, especially for drivers, the best way to do that is electrifying transportation. I mean, and I, and I know, especially in the north, people still need need to drive. Places like Toronto and Guelph, transit's much easier, but in the north, it's not. But you know, I was I was in Sudbury recently, and I was filling my electric vehicle up at a high speed charger at a Petro Canada station, and a gentleman came over to me in his pickup, and he said to me, he said, "How much does it cost to you to fill that thing up with electricity?" and i'm like well 5 bucks at home overnight but only 15 dollars here or 15 dollars here at the at the charger a bit more expensive and he was like oh my god i just put 150 in my truck and i said that's exactly why we're trying to get electric vehicles to be affordable for the average person and so when people talk about you know the ford comes out against rebates for electric vehicles and you know by the way we're saying you know a 10,000 dollar rebate on a on a new vehicle but a 1000 dollar rebate on a used vehicle, used electric vehicle, and a thousand-dollar rebate on on an electric bike, that's to make them affordable for average people. So the average Ontarian can afford to have, you know, the advantages of the low-cost ownership of of electrified of electric vehicles and the added benefit for people with pickup trucks, particularly in the trades is you now have a mobile battery pack to power your power tools. So I was saying to this guy's like, Oh, these like going to be so much cheaper for you, but all those tools you have in the back, you can actually power them from your pickup truck. And he was just like, wow, I never thought of that. And so it's like really having those conversations with folks. I didn't even bring up climate change with him. I was just talking pocketbook, but my gosh, that'd be a great climate policy too, to get rid of all those, um, transportation emissions, but the other thing is, even in the north, having a discussion about transit, so we've been calling for instead of cutting gas taxes and, and these these license plate sticker gimmicks, I've been calling for cutting transit fares in half, not only for municipal transit like the TTC or Guelph transit, but also go in Ontario Northland, um, and so, you know, we have to recognize that one, we need affordable trans, transit in the north, And we need to bring back the Ontario Northland train, but at the very least, at least Ontario Northland buses right now, let's cut those fares in half. And those benefits disproportionately uh, benefit uh, oftentimes the most needy and the most vulnerable in our society, like people who can't even afford to own a car. Like everything the Ford government has done has been to make fossil fuel driving cheaper, has done nothing for people, Struggling to put food on the table and pay their rent, uh, and many of those folks can't even afford to own a car.
1: Speaking to Mike Schreiner here on the Radical Reverend Show, and you know we're just really a couple of months away from, from an election here in Ontario. Uh, uh, so, you know, we, we've heard some of the platforms, some of the other parties. Uh, what is, what are the Greens proposing?
2: You know, the the three top issues we're going to be running on is one, housing affordability, and. The Toronto Star called our housing plan a masterclass plan in addressing the housing crisis. And we've received wave reviews across the political spectrum. And it's because we're proposing things that will make to engage the private sector in addressing affordable supply by allowing uh, duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes, laneway housing, tiny homes, secondary suites, basement apartments, et cetera. So we can increase housing supply, particularly gentle density housing supply within our existing urban boundaries. We don't have to pay for farmland and wetlands.
1: Yeah, explain And what you're we're talking
2: saying. about the public sector. Mm-hmm. Government has to come back to the table and provide the funding that nonprofit uh, co-op and social housing needs. And we're proposing to build 160,000 deeply affordable housing spaces, obviously addressing the climate crisis. And, you know, take me an hour to go through the details of that plan, but let's just say it's the most ambitious practical, um, solution to cutting climate pollution in half by the end of the decade and being net zero and true net zero not carbon capture net zero but true net zero by 2045 and then finally sherry i think we have to address the shadow pandemic and that's the mental health crisis that so many people are facing and the fact that we have 28,000 young people having to wait on average 18 months but as long as 2.5 years to access mental health services as far as I'm concerned, mental health is health in the same way, you know, physical health is paid for through OHIP, mental health should be paid for through OHIP. And we have to reduce those wait times so people can access timely services that, that are affordable and accessible to them. Those are going to be the three top line issues that, that we're going to be pushing. And, and that's what I'm hearing at the door, whether I'm knocking on doors in Guelph or here in Toronto or up north when I was in Sudbury and North Bay last week.
1: Uh, speaking to Mike Schreiner, as I said, you mentioned gentle density, Mike, and I just wanted to ask you what that meant, because a lot of people won't know what that means. The other thing that I've heard from housing activists in the city of Toronto, where, of course, it's a crisis, uh, is that we've got some 65,000 units, like basically units that are empty, that are just sitting yeah. there. Uh, we've got investors who are just investing in housing as they would in the stock market. They don't care if somebody lives there or not. As long as it goes up at least 10% a year, it's a good investment. Um so if you could a- answer those two things, what, what is gentle density? And what about all those? What about, you know, real estate as a stock market option and not as a as a home?
2: Yeah, I'll I'll address speculation first. So absolutely, um, you know, from the Ontario Greens perspective, housing should be for people, not speculators. And that's why we've been proposing not only um, increasing the non-resident speculation tax from 15 to 20% and expanding it across the province, but applying it to residents or non-residents. I mean, if you're a speculator, you're a speculator. I don't care if you're offshore or onshore, you should be taxed for that. And then the other thing we're proposing bringing in is a vacant homes tax. So those all those empty condos and, and and houses in many cases that are being left vacant just as a speculative tools, you would pay a tax on those. And, and my hope is, my hope, Sherry, is is that you know eventually the those two tax measures would raise zero dollars because we've driven all the speculators out of the market. But in the meantime, we would use that money to buy, to pay for. Uh, building 60,000 permanent supportive housing spaces over the next decade with wraparound, mental health, addiction, and other supports to really truly have a housing first strategy to, to address chronic uh, homelessness and then the people who just need support. And so we know that every $10 invested in permanent supportive housing saves $22 in healthcare costs, social justice, or social service costs, uh, criminal justice costs, etc., uh, and then on the general density side of things is, you know, so many neighborhoods in Ontario are single-family homes, and in some cases, very large single-family homes. And, and you know, you can, you can have much more density in those neighborhoods without, like, you know, changing the character of the neighborhood by just, as of right, allowing people to change single-family homes into duplexes, triplexes, and even quadplexes allowing for laneway housing, tiny homes, um, secondary suites, basement apartments, et cetera, all regulated and safe, of course. And so Kitchener, I was just in Kitchener the other day and a gentleman had you know, bought a house, turned it into two apartments at reasonable rent and then built a tiny home in the backyard where he was living. And it's like, suddenly you have one single family home that was for one family. Now you're housing three families in the same space. So imagine replicating that over and over again. That's a way that we can actually create additional housing supply. Most of that housing supply will be relatively affordable and we don't have to pave over farmland. We don't have to pave over wetlands. We don't have to sprawl out and build all these expensive highways, which then means transit's more efficient and affordable. It means people can live in communities where they can walk to support local businesses rather than going to big box stores. So to me, that's how you build livable, affordable, connected, wonderful communities to live in. And we get past this false choice where everything is tall or sprawl. Yeah.
1: Uh, speaking, of course, to Mike Schreiner here, uh, leader of the Ontario Green Party and MPP for Guelph. Um, Mike, you mentioned mental health. The NDP just uh, brought out a mental health uh, program. How is yours different? What, what does the Green Party look like?
2: Yeah, you know what? Actually, I was thinking, Sherry, that if there was ever a uh, moment where I thought, this is exactly why we need green MPPs. It's like we brought out the first mental health strategy by any political party in Ontario's history, and I don't know, a month and a half later, the NDP brings one out that's almost exactly the same, even down to the dollar amount. So, um, you know, in that case, I think this is one where we'll just work across party lines and, and move forward with it. I mean, I, I haven't had a chance to see where their funding mechanism is, to be honest. Ours actually is just the $1.1 billion to fund it would come from getting rid of Doug Ford's license plate sticker gimmick. And frankly, I was the only MPP in the entire legislature to vote against that legislation. And I know it's tough because, you know, there's a lot of this, oh, we're going to save you money. But you know what? That's $1.1 billion that can go to making mental health care affordable through OHIP. And I just thought, you know, once again, this is another one of those gimmicks that might sound good, but it disproportionately benefits wealthy households. You know, the people who can own six cars, 120 bucks times six adds up for the average family out there that can, you know, barely afford to own one, maybe two cars. You know, the savings isn't that much when you consider uh, how we can expand public services like mental health to, you know, make it affordable and accessible for people. Uh,
1: So, Mike, you're facing an election, June 2nd not your first <laughs> by any stretch uh, and polls. I know Polish polls, but I polling looks like uh, even a possible PC majority again, uh, certainly a PC, probably minority. Um, what does that look like? We've just seen uh, federally the NDP um, and the Liberals um, making uh, a deal. Um, w- what is that gonna look like if, let's just assume for a moment, Well, let's assume both scenarios, PC majority, what do you do?
2: Yeah, well, PC majority is is going to be horrible for Ontario. It's just going to be awful. Um, I think it's too early to be even speculating, predicting that, because I think there's a lot of volatility in the electorate right now. And, and I think polls are going to shift substantially over the next, um, you know, two months of, of you know, the pre-writ and then the writ period. So I think it's too early to make that prediction. And I, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there. who's like cut the premier a little bit of slack during COVID, even though I think he's made some horrendous decisions during COVID. And I think he's making some bad decisions right now. That's really putting the most vulnerable at at, at risk. Uh, But it doesn't seem to be hurting him as much as I kind of thought some of those decisions were. But so let's see, let's see where things shake, shake down. I think if it's a minority government, that's when we're in, you know, there's polls suggesting that. And I think that's where there's some real exciting opportunities. Not necessarily a conservative minority. I've already made it pretty clear. I can't imagine myself, you know, working with with uh, Doug Ford, given the fact that almost everything he's done has been to dismantle the, the things I came here to Queens Park to try to fight for. But um, I think I think especially on climate, where half measures from all the legacy parties have really meant that Canada hasn't we've, we've never met an emission target <laughs> in, in Canada, you know, we just haven't. Uh, the closest was in BC when we had an NDP minority government with the with the three green MLAs holding the balance of power and the clean BC plan at that time was the most ambitious climate plan that had come forward in, on in, in Canada. But unfortunately since it's gone back to a majority government like you know now they're doubling down on liquefied natural gas and opening up old growth logging and etc and so i I really think it's going to take a minority government with just a few greens to hold people's feet to the fire and i have said to the other progressive parties that like you know if you have to make some tough decisions on climate and you want to blame it on the green party i'm happy to take that on because literally it's now or never like it is now or never and, and so we're at our last moment here to really get off fossil fuels. And, and quite frankly, I think for Ontario, it would be fantastic for our economy to get off fossil fuels. We don't really have any fossil fuels in Ontario. So we should be the global leader in the new climate economy. We just really need the political will to make it happen. And it's like no more half measures. We need the transformative change that's actually gonna deliver deep reductions in carbon pollution.
1: Uh, Speaking to Mike Schreiner here, of course, um, on the Radical Reverend Show, your host, Sherry De Novo. And and Mike, uh, I think part of the problem with the environmental issue, because I remember when I was there, it was always polling, not pretty poorly. It wasn't like Mm. a top of the mind issue. And it is lack of of education, lack of media taking this up, lack of information. Uh, So a lot of people you speak to in Ontario, when you talk about climate crisis, they think, well, that's going to happen somewhere else. If you're living on an island in the South Pacific, if you're, you know, this is going to affect developing nations, but it's not going to affect us. In fact, our winters might get warmer, I've heard people say. (laughs) Um, What could happen? Let's, Let's paint a scary picture for a minute here. What are we looking at if we don't act on the climate?
2: Yeah, well, sure. I, I tend to like to give them the hopeful message, but maybe okay. I'll give them the unhopeful <laughs> one for a second here. So, you know, the World Health Organization says the biggest threat to human health is the climate crisis. And that's quite a statement to make when, when it was made in the middle of a global pandemic. You know, 600 people died in British Columbia uh, due to the heat wave last summer. Um, and you don't think it's coming to Ontario six first nations communities in Northern Ontario had to be evacuated due to forest fires last summer. The city of Toronto had the worst air quality in the world for a few days, a combination of the fires on the West coast and, and the fires in Northern Ontario, you know, talk to the people in Muskoka. I, I met one family there who um, you know, they built at their retirement home up there uh, two meters above the highest water level in recorded human history and their house has been flooded twice now in the last five years. Um, This is costing our economy billions and billions of dollars. It's costing people in their property. I mean, look at the flooding in British Columbia, Ontario, the tornadoes in Barrie, et cetera. but it's affecting our health. I mean, it's you know not only heat deaths, but it's like Lyme disease. Who would have thought we'd have Lyme disease in Ontario? Now it's like every time you want to go have a barbecue in the summer, you got to be worried about a tick giving you Lyme disease, which is a debilitating uh, disease. Um, rates of asthma and other respiratory illnesses from poor air quality due to forest fires. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And it doesn't even have to be this way, because in, in the case of Ontario, you know, we ship $25 to $30 billion out of our economy every year to buy fossil fuels from other jurisdictions. That money could stay in Ontario, um, supporting renewable energy, clean clean electricity, powering our homes, powering our transportation systems, creating more and better jobs in Ontario. So let's just get on with it.
1: Thank you, Mike Schreiner. Pleasure as always. Uh, good luck. Uh, well, thank you. We'll I appreciate it soon. <laughs> Take care, Sherry. Thank you. Next time on Radical Reverend.
0: CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city.
1: Welcome back to the Radical Reverend show and listeners. It's lovely to have you. So I always respond if you send me information and suggestions, et cetera, et cetera. Today, of course, on the show, uh, you pick this up from having Mike on the first half of the show. We're really focusing on the climate crisis because it seems to have dropped off the radar, what with a war and a pandemic. Uh, And to help us on that file and also to talk about her new bill, C-245, and what impact that could have if that passes, we've got uh, one of our favorites, Nikki Ashton, our gal in Ottawa, and uh, she's not only in Ottawa, of course, she's the MP for Churchill, Kewat, and, Asti, and been around for a while. So Nikki, welcome back to the Radical <laughs> Reverend Show.
0: Sherry, it's uh, so great to be back and uh, just a, a mutual fandom on my end of, of you and your work.
1: So let's, let's jump right in. What is Bill C-245? What does it do? Um, why should we see this into law? Mm-hmm. Well, Bill C-245 is,
0: is my private member's bill. And, uh, and essentially what it does, it uses public ownership in the fight against climate change. We all know that to tackle uh, climate change, we need bold, collective action. Uh, we need uh, beyond an all-government approach. Um, but but just looking at government, we need to ensure that we're using all the tools at our disposal. And what we've said is, is we know that communities are already paying the price of climate change. We're seeing that in terms of impacts on infrastructure uh, particularly in Indigenous and Northern communities like where I come from and the communities I represent. Um, We know based on science, these are the communities that are most deeply impacted even even now. Uh, And uh, and what we're saying is we need to give communities the tools and and Canadians the tools to to mitigate as well as adapt to climate change. And what better way to do that than using one of our Crown corporations, um, the uh, Canada Infrastructure Bank, a bank that not many people know about uh and um and i think would be shocked to hear uh even just a little about you know this is a bank uh a, a um uh, that was created just about five years ago uh by uh the the well-known bill morneau and um, it is currently sitting on 35 billion dollars it has not seen one project to completion uh and uh, and and many have argued and, and that's certainly what we are doing is that its foundations are, are fundamentally broken rotten whatever you call it it is a bank that is is premised on building triple p projects public private partnerships it is focused on projects that have a a, a profit um, uh, margin uh and uh and really what what it does it it uh, uh sets forward a privatization agenda and really excludes the needs of our communities uh we're saying that uh <clears throat> that this needs to change we need to reform the bank and we need to make it work for the fight against climate change and that's really what uh, what our bill is about
1: now would there be still be the same number of billions if uh the private corporations take a walk um from that bank i mean how what does that look like
0: yeah well we <clears throat> so what we're saying is that that uh, we obviously need to make sure that uh, that uh, that the federal government, much like uh, all of our crown corporations, creates it creates a a, a sustainable um, uh, a model, uh, and uh, and we are we believe that that can happen through um uh you know through not just ensuring that it obviously has has a, 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 you know a pot to start with, uh, but that it also has innovative. Uh, lending models to work with as well and right now the infrastructure bank is required to go to the private sector for financing we're saying we need to get rid of that um, but uh, but we could be looking at, at uh, partnerships with other public uh, governments obviously first nations uh, provincial municipal Uh, territorial uh, and uh, as well as public institutions but we should be looking further and also creating innovative tools like issuing green bonds for example we know that a number of our crown corporations like cmhc like export development canada have uh, incredible uh, lending capacity uh, and uh and relatively successful lending models in terms of of, uh, of producing results, um, the politics of it obviously are a bit can be a bit tricky in terms of some of the projects, particularly Export Development Canada uh, invests in. But all to say that we should be looking at at bringing in some of those successful. Uh, public uh oriented lending models including green uh something like green bonds into the infrastructure bank now our bank, our act set, or our bill sets the stage for this uh and uh, and what we're saying but we first need to do is get rid of the private investment and and really focus on on the opportunities when we when we use and partner with uh, uh, communities, uh, public institutions, to get at some of the major infrastructure gaps that we're facing in the context of climate change.
1: You mentioned First Nations and Indigenous who, I mean, if you've been paying attention at all to the issues of the climate crisis in Canada, you're seeing that First Nations are on the, you know, on, on the fighting edge of that. Uh, in terms of their own land, I mean from BC with the Wet'suwet'en to here in Ontario, Grassy Narrows, etc. Um, uh, how would this benefit in your area? What would this look like to your First Nations uh, if you could get this bill passed and free up some money? Like, where would this go? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the the opportunities are are immense and uh, and i will tell you Sherry, we've been talking to indigenous and northern leaders not just in in our constituency but in uh, across the country up in the territories northwestern ontario out west and uh, and people on the ground believe that this is necessary and they don't believe it's necessary because it's it's theoretical it's because they are feeling the price of uh, the, the cost of climate change uh, right they're they're seeing the the devastating impact on our on our um, Uh, infrastructure Uh, and they also know that they've gone to the federal government in many cases time and time again and only have a door slammed in their face or pointed to a a grant a uh, one-off you know proposal driven uh, uh, um, you know departmental grant that that is simply not suitable for what they're facing Uh, so what we've said is 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 uh, let's create a um, let's fix the bank so that it is a, a place where communities can go can put proposals forward the bank could also look at at other communities that are in the same boat uh, and uh, and find ways to address these these infrastructure um, uh, crises really and so we're talking about things like uh, transitioning uh, first nations in particular and northern communities that depend on diesel Um, you know folks in southern Canada may not know but we have dozens of communities in northern Canada including four in my constituency, many in Nunavut and the Northwest Territories that depend entirely on diesel burning energy, right? So so we're, we're talking about heating homes, you know, uh, running internet, all of that is through diesel. I mean, that's just shocking. If we're talking about shrinking our carbon footprint, if we're talking about mitigation, this would be a number one place to go. Uh, we know that the federal government is currently subsidizing uh, the, the, uh, the burning of diesel in many of these communities. And what we've heard time and time again from communities, I think of, of the chief of, uh, First Nation in our writing is, uh, you know, we want to get off dirty diesel. We want to connect to greener sources of energy, but we don't have the tools and the support, obviously, to do that. So we're saying that's a project that could be looked at. Other issues are, are the need for all-weather roads, right? A lot of communities are, are seeing their ice roads melt, and people say, "Well, building roads in the age of climate change." Um, if if people only knew the the carbon footprint of the number of flights that go in and out of these communities, um, that uh, that that people have no choice to take because there's no other way to get out. Yes, building a a road, obviously, in consultation with communities and following environmental regulations, would be able to cut down on our carbon footprint. And We're also talking about forest fire protection. You know, there's not just one or two First Nations that are on the front lines of fighting uh, now increasingly Uh, um, uh, horrifying forest fires. You know, we should be looking at the kind of infrastructure support around fire safety that communities need to survive. You know, yesterday I spoke in Parliament. uh, It was actually our first hour of debate on, on our motion, and I shared... Sherry, words from communities that experienced uh, these horrific wildfires this summer, including from Pongasi First Nation, where I will never forget sitting in that hotel room with the vac- with the leaders of the community who were evacuated. And they said, you know, uh, we felt trapped, right? I mean, and I, I don't think, I think it's hard to imagine what that feeling uh, is, is like, knowing that, that, a, that literally a raging forest fire is approaching your community and you have no way to get out because you have no road in their case have no airport and and literally until the 11th hour didn't have any any government support right i also brought up lytton in bc which obviously got a lot of attention a community that was burnt to a crisp in 25 minutes right so so these communities are crying out for help they know i mean you know if there's one thing that these communities know this is there's a chance of this happening again uh with the frequency of of uh of uh forest fires that we're seeing and increasingly uh extreme weather events and they're saying we want to work with with the federal government and with all you know all these tools to keep our community safe so so you know public transit needs to be part of this um uh, uh certainly investment in uh in other uh avenues of of mitigation ought to be part of this and and what we're saying is that all communities should access this this fund but what we've seen in the last five years, again, no project completed, but the vast majority of the projects that are even considered are for the South, are in urban centers, and uh, and certainly have uh, have very little care for, for the impact of climate change. We said, we're saying this needs to change. We need our crown corporations to work for all of us. And we also need to make sure that they are in line, you know, recognizing that the greatest challenge we are facing, uh, you know, in, in, as humanity is the climate crisis and we need to act now.
1: Speaking to uh, Nikki Ashton, MP, and uh, we're speaking about her bill uh, right now to reform the Canadian Infrastructure Bank which few Canadians you're right Nikki know even exists sitting on billions and billions of dollars that could be freed up uh you know in in private conversation you told me a a really moving story about the the effects of the melted, like permafrost changes on just even Mm -hmm. basic things like plumbing in northern communities maybe say a little bit about that because I I I mean the fire that's dramatic but this is you know turning on the tap stuff right um yeah what's what's happening there Yeah, absolutely. So
0: some may have heard, for example, that uh, Iqaluit, right, the capital of Nunavut has had an ongoing water crisis. We heard about contamination. Uh, We heard about, uh, you know, a number of challenges over the last number of years. And I should note that there was recently a a federal investment announced around uh, around the treatment plant. But here's the other part of it is that Iqaluit uh, is uh, is del- definitely feeling the brunt of climate change. Uh, permafrost is is melting at an alarming rate, and uh, we've spoken to leaders from that area, including the former mayor Madeline Redfern, and uh, and she talked about one of the impacts of the melting permafrost is uh, is that the water pipes uh, are snapping because of. Um, uh, well, because the the ground is shifting, obviously, right? So so the issue isn't just the water treatment plant needing to treat obviously uh, uh, clean clean the water. The problem is getting uh, water to people's homes when you have pipes that are constantly breaking um, because of of the melting permafrost. Now, what's what's really disconcerting is is obviously the community knows this well. You know, their their experts know this well. Uh, and when they went to the federal government and said, look. You know, in in uh, in the quest to get clean water to our homes and make sure people have access to clean water, um, there is this technology that we'd like to invest in, uh, so that that our our uh, water pipes are, are more, uh, I guess, uh, able to shift with with the ground shifting, and the feds sent them to this this. Uh, Uh, again, this this source of funding that they said was around climate and adaptation, uh, only to find out that really, if if you wanted solar powers or to invest in geothermal, um, that's basically all you could get out of that fund. And they said, here we are, the most northern capital in the country, uh, being very clear that that we are paying the price of climate change in terms of access to clean water, basic human need. and, um, And we're pointed to a fund by our federal government, that is completely inadequate. Like, just didn't get it, and uh, and so um, you know, and so they said if we could go to the infrastructure bank and say, look, it this is what we need. <clears throat> How can we work with you to do this? We would love that. Uh, and uh, and a lot of the and the sort of the the kind of uh, parenthesis to this is a lot of the projects in the north, obviously po- smaller population um are are seen as as too small have been seen as being too small for the bank to invest in i mean how ridiculous that is that a whole crown corporation with the name of Canada Infrastructure Bank and basically excludes large swaths of the country because these some of these projects are seen as being too small so so we've said all of that's got to change my goodness if we can't deliver clean water because of of uh, pipes uh breaking because of permafrost then uh then we're obviously not this bank is obviously not doing is not doing its job obviously neither is the federal government actually a story that i heard since we last spoke as well sherry is is in 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 yukon they've had record snowfalls right record snowfalls absolutely tied to climate change and uh and they said that um One of the impacts is uh, radio stations or radio towers. We're saying this on a, on a radio show, radio towers in remote uh, communities, many of them first nations in the Yukon are snapping under the weight of the snow. And, uh, and, and as people can imagine, in a lot of these communities, radio is the only way uh, to get the news in a timely fashion, right? Access to internet is is spotty if, if at all. Uh, And, and, you know, TVs are, are a luxury, uh, and, and certainly local news gets through a lot faster through radio. And so these towers are breaking. Uh, access to radio is is under threat. And again, when they went to the federal government, not the bank in this case, but when they went to the federal government, um, uh, they, uh, they, well, basically, the, the project's just sitting on a desk and, and not being dealt with. And they they actually pointed to the fact that a few years ago, when there was a, a uh, earthquake uh, these these radio stations were critical so climate change impacting in very clear and direct ways like you said not not in terms of a forest fire uh you know in the in the in the shocking side of that but in terms of very real impacts on people's quality of life uh daily life and uh, uh these people are sounding the alarm and it's incumbent on us and our government uh as well as our crown corporations to hear these calls and and work with these communities to come up with solutions
1: speaking to mp nikki ashton here about her bill c245 which would reform the canadian infrastructure bank so that people that need it can actually get the money out because there's billions and billions of dollars sitting there um where is the bill at right now nikki like where is it at in the parliamentary process what does it look like so
0: we just had our first hour of debate uh it is a priority bill i i uh, first time in almost 14 years of doing this work my name was i I want a lottery, I guess. Um so <laughs> I uh so it's it, it'll come up again very soon. The second Arab debate is the end of May, and then um uh, and then it will likely come to a vote in June. And of course, as, as uh, people know, if it passes the vote, it goes to committee for further examination. Uh, and unfortunately, if it doesn't pass the vote, then then the bill dies. So, um, so basically, that you know, we, we're, that opportunity to to have this bill go forward is right around the corner. And we're certainly inviting any and all folks who are interested to join our campaign. Uh, let let their MPs know that this is important uh, in the fight against climate change, and that and that we want their their support support from all parties.
1: So, and there's a wonderful tool, by the way, on your website to do just that. So uh, you're really looking at Liberal votes here for them, mainly and mostly, right?
0: Well, I mean, mainly, uh, I mean, the Conservatives, probably not not surprising, have a, have a real uh, allergy towards public ownership and, uh, 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 you know, collective action um, you know it's uh, it's it's uh, and they also actually have expressed concern around uh, um you know concerning in very concerning terms around indigenous representation on the board i mean uh, clearly the conservative party of canada is not uh, um you know is, is not in in uh, 2022 or maybe 1922 um but uh, but unfortunately uh, you know their their uh, willingness uh, or unwillingness to recognize the urgency of climate change uh, you know the need to act on commitments on reconciliation is is once again apparent um, through their lack of support for this bill. Uh, And the the Bloc Québécois, while while, uh, quite uh, positive around the the substance of the bill, as as folks can imagine, have have a slight uh, issue when it comes to national institutions, including crown corporations. Um, So really what we're doing here is zoning in on on the Liberals, who who, who claim to be climate champions, uh, who created a crown corporation to seemingly deal with the infrastructure crisis we're facing uh, and I will say, interestingly enough, very few are actually willing to, to uh, at this point, champion the bank. So, so they know they're vulnerable on, on, uh, on, on this front. They know that the bank has not delivered anywhere near what it promised to. Um, and, uh, and we also hope that they know that, uh, uh, that you know, if we're going to be serious about the climate crisis, we need to use all tools at our disposal. And the Infrastructure Bank is simply not doing that. I will also note that there are a number of Liberals that represent northern constituencies, including you. In the Northwest Territories. They know well the struggles that their communities are facing, others as well. And so this isn't the time to sort of opine about what government could be doing. This is the time to change uh, uh, what it is doing and and really get our crown corporations like the Infrastructure Bank on the right page uh, when it comes to fighting climate change.
1: Before we uh, leave the topic, and again, I'm talking to um, Nikki Ashton here on the Radical Reverend Show, your host Sherry Genovo, about uh, her bill... Uh, which would free up a lot of money uh, to do what it's purporting to do at the Canadian Infrastructure Bank, and that is to fight some, uh, some of the effects of the climate crisis in this country. Why is it, because this was very true when I was in government and still is somewhat true, I mean, we can see this from the Ontario election, um, climate crisis is not one of the lead issues for any of the parties here. Um, and it, does, it seems to have fallen off the radar. I mean, we know we're in the pandemic, um, people are dealing with that, we know there's a war, people are frightened about that and what that means to them. Um, but you know how, like, how do we break through just in terms of getting people aware that really this is an existential crisis we're in here? Um, thoughts about that? Like, how how can mm-hmm. we like bring this up in the polling so that people mm-hmm. make it, you know, top of mind issue?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's a good question, Sherry, and I'm also very concerned that uh, we, uh, you know, we, we're seeing folks sort of uh, um, at times lose track of of, of the absolute uh, need for urgency. Um, I do wonder if we if uh, much like what we saw last summer is, is, as as uh, as the as the summer approaches right as the weather gets warmer as we start to see again extreme uh, climate events um, if it won't come back into sort of the forefront as it did last summer right and people saying wait a second you know, I mean, I knew that we were on a path here but uh, um, but I didn't know what was going to happen right, right now. And that's the thing with as we know, climate change. Um, it's not it's not a progressive uh, um, uh, direction that we're going into in the sense of, of uh, um, I mean, things are getting worse, but it, it's it's also the, the extremes, right. So so I, I do feel that uh, that there is uh, perhaps uh, unfortunately uh, another summer to be reckoned with where we are going to see these, these realities. And I think it's it's really um, it's really critical that uh, um, that we listen to community that are absolutely, I mean, it's scientifically uh, um, already facing a climate change on an ongoing basis within our own country, uh, right? And so kind of harder to say in downtown of our urban centers, right? Where, where, are sort of, you're, you're not out on the land and you're certainly not, not uh, um, seeing some of these extremes, but, uh, uh, but folks are feeling it. So, so what my message would be is, 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 uh, you know, uh, finding ways to connect with these communities, finding ways to amplify and join the work of climate justice activists who are on the front end of this work right now. And the other piece I would say, and, and actually, um, uh, I could have said this uh, offline, but Sherry, you would be a great person to connect on this stuff too. Um, you know, I, I think part of the problem here is our mainstream media, it lulls us into this sense of of um uh you know complacency, uh, ignorance. I mean, you know, I, I was looking at the coverage, for example, of yet another oil and gas project that the liberals uh supported yesterday, the Bay du Nord project. Uh and uh and the coverage was was uh uh ridiculous, right? It was just it was just not on, right? I mean, just days ago, we had the UN Secretary General be very clear that uh, that the real radicals are those that are expanding fossil fuel um, infrastructure. And and here we have a liberal government, you know, purports to be uh, climate oriented, um, doing the very same thing that the UN just clearly said is is absolutely part of the problem. Unfortunately, the media cov- coverage was pathetic, Right. We heard the rhetoric around good jobs, et cetera, et cetera. We also heard the fallacy that somehow this project was going to end up with net, you know, at net zero. Um, and we didn't hear from folks on the other side, certainly what I saw in, in mainstream coverage, right, saying, wait a second, time is running out. What the hell are we doing here, right? And what the hell is this government doing? So so, um, so I think the work of of, uh, of critical voices like yours and others in the media continuing these stories, right, speaking to communities, speaking to activists is so critical, and I'm aware of a project, and this is what I wanted to bring up. Uh, it's uh, it's coming out of BC through uh, the journalism school in, um, I believe, at the University of Victoria, and uh, and they're looking at at ways to sensitize journalism students in the way on uh, which they report on the climate uh, crisis, right? And centering the story of the climate crisis on the human experience, uh, and uh, you know, moving beyond. Um, this forest fire burned here, that storm was devastating there, um, you know, and, and moving towards the absolutely devastating impact on, on people, right. Looking at things like eco-anxiety, looking at things like the PTSD that's being created, looking at the ways in which, um, cultures traditions certainly on the indigenous front families are being you know uh, impacted right and um and we need to find ways to tell these stories very differently uh to uh, and, you know to to bring people um that uh, that like you said are rightly so consumed with the covid pandemic and uh um and and the war obviously in in saying look, this is, this, is, uh, this is happening right here, right now. We need to act on it. And if I can add one more thing at the end is one of the things we saw in this pandemic is the way in which government can pull out all the stops right away. Unfortunately not right now, where we've seen government give up and and uh, lead us into this sixth wave with with uh, uh, very uh, uh, troubling results. But we saw the way in which certainly in the first year and a half or, or so, um, you know government had record spending, uh, you know uh, moved mountains to make a difference. If we could only do part of that when it comes to climate change, we'd be better off, um, you know. Now, right? So, so there's, uh, I think there's hope to be gained, uh, but there's no question that this, this, uh, um, you know, that that we need to bring more people on board and keep talking to folks in a way that uh, that they know that uh, um, not only that this is this is uh, cl- the climate crisis is here, but there's there's hope and there's ways to fight back.
1: Uh, speaking here to Nikki Ashen, MP, uh, always a pleasure, uh, our gal in Ottawa, and uh, you're listening to the Radical Reverend show also on podcast in a few days. We just have a few minutes left, but I, really the show is on the climate crisis. And I, I was thinking as you were speaking, Nikki, that until the tornado hits Bay Street, we probably won't get much of an action. I mean, the banks are foremost in this in this problem in their investment in the fossil fuel industry. How do we, and they're federally regulated, so how do, is there, are there any levers? I mean, we talked about the Canadian Infrastructure Bank. It's kind of a, a one-off, but but the big banks in Canada are, are really kind of on the wrong side of this, aren't they? Um, what can we do there? I know there's been demonstrations in Toronto around this um, and, uh, and will continue to be, I hope. And also by, and I think that's really interesting because you represent in Northern Manitoba an area that has First Nations in it, that this has been really an issue of First Nations as well as the climate Mm -hmm. crisis because it's about land control too. Um, What can we do about the banks? Um, What can Mm -hmm. we do about the big investments? Anything, is there anything?
0: Uh, that's a great question and and you're right i mean it is out of control obviously uh the royal bank we know is uh, is one of the worst when it comes to oil and gas uh you know and i was really inspired to see the uh that that webinar recently with uh with suitan activists and and some celebrities as well the hollywood star power there, uh calling out the royal bank and and their investments in uh um in, in the uh uh gas and and uh obviously the um um uh,
1: anyway the the yes. continued by the way, oppression the, their AGM has gone online because of this it was going to be in person so just interestingly <gasps> oh. but yes just heard that but anyway continue what are we going to do about the bank's investment yeah
0: well I think I, you're 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 absolutely right we we uh you know we need to um I mean to go after them I know I know and the NDP that's uh that's a favorite of ours we're certainly talking about about uh taxing their profits but uh but but um you know we should absolutely be be looking at uh ways of of uh, uh reining them in legislating uh their their ability to uh um to invest in in uh in fossil fuels and um, you know we've we've obviously uh um yeah no i think that's you know and i mean like we've I know we've done a lot of work around pension funds and private pension funds, but uh, um, which are also part of the problem on that front, but, but there's no question that banks are, are um, we have to go after them. Right. I mean, and they're part of the problem, not just in terms of fossil fuel and, and uh, um, devastating resource expansion here in our country, but uh, it's Canadian banks that are fueling uh, uh, a lot of the, the troubling projects around the world as well. or part of them. Right. So um, yeah, that's uh that's that's a great question, Sherry, and uh and I will take it back and, and give some thought. I I would expect nothing less than the, than the podcast with Sherry's to over with like <laughs> well next. We, we're
1: talking about, uh, you know, i talking about I, I know we've talked on the show about this many times about pandemic profiteering. Well, there, here's a classic case and of course, um uh, you know, and and those pandemic profits need to in some way be taxed back um uh, because uh, and and you know, these are big institutions that have already got you know, support during a pandemic as well. So anyway.
0: yeah, yeah, but I I think your point around climate, right? I mean, this is uh, I mean, we we. You know, we we know that oil and gas has expanded during this pandemic, right? Uh, I mean, now we we've seen yet another project uh, be be approved at the federal level. Uh, this is uh, it's not stopping. I mean, and it really is a parallel parallel universe. And unfortunately, what we've seen is is from the Trudeau government um, an unwillingness to to deal with it. So yes, we will. I will take it back, and uh, we got to do this.
1: Thank you, Nikki Ashton. This segment of the Radical Reverend Show. Uh, Stay tuned and come back next week. Uh, Till then, uh, yeah, take a be observant. Be observant about the climate crisis. Still there, hasn't stopped. Till next time on the Radical Reverend Show.